My name is Elaine Viscatis. My name is Ellen Rump. My name is Mike Steveline. I am a stay-at-home homeschooling mom. I am a transportation manager. I'm an administrative assistant at New Life. I gave my life to Christ when I was 12 years old. I gave my life to Christ when I was 11 years old. I became a Christ follower when I was 8 years old. I have been at New Life since 2003. I've been at New Life for 10 years. I have been at New Life since April of 2006. I grew up in a Christian family as a pastor's kid. I grew up going to church off and on. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is being consistent with my daily quiet times. My biggest challenge with walking with Christ is knowing what to do and then actually doing it. My biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is demonstrating Christ's love all the time to my son. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. you liked it. Paula, you're great. So are you. Oh, I wish I didn't have to leave. You don't have to go yet, do you? I mean, I wish I didn't have to leave at all. Steve. You don't understand. You don't know how hard it is to kiss you goodbye knowing it's going to be 24 hours before I, before I see you again. Touch you again? Hold you again. Oh, Steve. Oh, Paula. No. I'm sorry, Paula. No, I'm sorry. I I mean, I didn't mean to grab you like that. Steve, we grabbed each other. It's okay. The important thing is we stopped. I just don't want you to think I'm I'm not taking our decision seriously not to, you know. Steve, I trust you. I'm glad you do. And I love you. And I love you. We just lost our heads for a moment, that's all. We were carried away by the, the candlelight and the music. And each other. But how about those Buckeyes? Oh, wait! Bye, oh. I'm going to clear the table. I'm going to freshen the flowers. Wait. Oh. Oh. oh, man, come on, get a grip, get a grip, uh, stay in control, um, let's read the paper, um, what's going on in the stock market, uh, Sears is up, that's good, uh, AT&T is down, and uh, lingerie that begs to be taken off. How can they have an ad like this in a family newspaper? Oh, is there anything that's safe? Uh, Time Magazine, that ought to be safe. Uh, how do they get an, a woman to, to lie on the front of a car like that? Oh, there's nothing safe. Uh, this music, it's not helping. I've got to find something else.
like that song. May I have this dance? Um, why not? I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me. So deep in my heart. How about something faster? Good idea. Good idea. That feeling. Put the remote. I excuse me. Oh, found it. <clears throat> Safe sex. Are people doing it today on the Oprah Winfrey Show? Uh, let's uh, rent a movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, my soft wire somewhere. Uh. Um, oh, here's a listing. Okay. Um, we have Sex Lies and Videotape, Body Heat, or um, Sex in no, the City. I really should be get going. It's getting late. Um, Steve, it's 730. <laughs> See what I mean, Paula? Th thanks for dinner. Thanks for the flowers but thanks for everything we'll do it soon no. i mean we'll do it again no. i mean dinner we'll do this thing. i'll call you i'll call you okay bye <laughs> well let's all pray for steve and paula today through some struggles in their lives. <laughs> well, it is good to see you today, and uh, we are continuing on in our series in 1 Corinthians that we began back in the pre-Cambrian period, I think. It's been going on for decades, but um, we're talking a lot about uh, singles today, some about marrieds and some about singles, and I really don't want to tick off too many of you, but I would like us to just kind of see how this breaks down in the room in our church these days and uh, in this service. So if you're okay with this, I would like for you, if you're married, if you're currently married right now, would you just stand up so we can kind of see how this all shakes down here, okay? Lots of married folks. All right, singles, let's give these guys a hand. Kind of light applause. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. A smattering of applause. Um, marriage is hard work. You need to know that. And if you are single and don't mind standing and letting all of us know that, would you stand at this time, all of our single adults in this church? Yeah. Okay, marriage, let's give these guys a hand. Awesome. Awesome. You guys realize that you just invited like 400 people over to that pool party today, right? Do you have enough city barbecue to... Okay, just worried about that. <laughs> well, um, I love being in a church that has hundreds of married couples in it and hundreds of sold-out single adults in it. I just, I just think it's cool. I love poking my head in here on a Wednesday night, 
during the summer, and we have a ladies' uh, group study in the, in the auditorium here, and seeing all kinds of ladies, single ladies, married ladies, 18-year-old uh, young adults and grandmas, and all together studying God's Word and exalting Jesus together. I love that. I love being a part of a church like that. There was a wedding here, uh, right up here on this platform just the other night, and um, weddings are always beautiful, aren't they? How many of you like weddings? Fun time, everybody's all dressed up, you know, there's flowers and candles around, and you know, this freshly scrubbed couple is standing up there, kind of stiff because they're wearing clothes they don't usually wear, and uh, in front of God, and in front of a pastor, and in front of about a hundred witnesses, that couple exchanged vows and uh, gave each other a ring and prayed and poured sand together into a little vial uh, symbolizing the commingling of their lives together going forward, which is kind of a cool thing that couples have been doing for the last few years. And, of course, they kissed, and that's always a lot of fun to watch. And they made a covenant with each other before God to cherish and to love each other until death do us part. And uh, it was a beautiful wedding. And we ought to celebrate weddings, shouldn't we? And we ought to celebrate marriages, especially those that honor Jesus Christ. But you know what? We should also celebrate singleness. We should. There's no big ceremony celebrating that. But there is a ton of biblical support for a life of singleness, especially singleness that is devoted to honoring Jesus Christ. For the last year, I've been in a small group in our church. I'm married, but I've been in a small group of mostly single adults and have enjoyed it immensely. Just the opportunity to be enriched by some of the fantastic single adults in our church has been a great experience for me. And what we're finding from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that Paul, the apostle, taught that each of us has our own gift from God, right? Some are called to be single and some are called to be married. And the task is for each of us to discern individually and personally what God's particular gift to us is, what his calling on our life is. And we've seen that Paul himself was single, and he was an outspoken advocate of singleness. We find that all through 1 Corinthians. Now, you need to know that I'm not trying to talk those of you who are married today out of being married. Um, we're going to talk about, or Paul's going to talk about, really five benefits of staying single, okay? But if you're married, that's not for you, okay? This is really to bless our single folks today, and uh, we're going to dive right in. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you need a Bible, we've got some loners in the back, and you can jump up and grab one of those. But I hope that if you are married, I hope you have some single friends in your life in addition to your married friends. And uh, if you're single, I hope you have some married friends as well. I think Paul would encourage that. Well, he's going to talk to us about five benefits of staying single. And the first is this. Paul declares that singles will be spared many troubles. Here's how he says it. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the betrothed. I'm wondering how many of you have a version of the Bible that says virgins there. Could you raise your hands just so I can see? Yeah, okay, a number of you. The word in the original could actually be translated either way, virgins or betrothed or what we would call engaged people. Because of the context, the ESV translates it betrothed, which meant to be promised or pledged in marriage to somebody. But either way, however it's translated, the principle is the same as we're going to see. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. 
meaning he couldn't quote Jesus on this. Jesus did not address this particular situation. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, and you might want to circle that phrase because I think that gives us the lens through which we need to see everything that he writes in the rest of this chapter. In view of what's going on in the world, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Reason number one, benefit number one of staying single, singles will be spared many worldly troubles. And so you hear that and think, troubles? Troubles? Married people have troubles? What kind of troubles? Well, the word he uses in the original means to be pressed together or literally under pressure. The pressures of marriage. That's what he's talking about. Remaining single spares you from all the pressures of being married. Now, for sure, there are pressures of being single, too. That's what we observed in Steve and Paula, particularly sexual pressure, pressure to be involved sexually. And Paul's talked about that several times already in this letter. We don't want to minimize that pressure. But he's saying that getting married brings with it all kinds of pressures as well. What kind of pressures? Well, let me mention a few. How about the pressure caused by sin? The sin that every bride and every groom bring into the marriage. The only problem with this couple that was getting married the other night is themselves, the bride and the groom. We each bring into our marriage selfishness, pride, deceit, lying, bitterness. Marriage is the coming together of two sinners, saved sinners, for sure. And if this fits your theology better, under sanctified sinners, but sinners nonetheless. Sinful people create pressure for each other in a marriage. How about the pressure of expectations? Every bride and every groom bring into their marriage expectations. Isn't this true? There's what she thought a husband should be and do. There's what he thought a good wife did. Why aren't you handy like my dad was always handy around the house? How come you're not like him? I thought that's what husbands did. Why don't you cook like mom did? How come you stopped pursuing me after we got married? How come you're not hot to have sex all the time like those gals on TV? Expectations brought into the marriage create pressure. How about the pressure of lifestyle adjustments? You're accustomed to going out with your buddies and playing golf three nights a week. Or maybe she's accustomed to spending a lot of time with her friends and now you get married and you bring those relationship patterns into your marriage and it creates friction, it creates pressure. How about the adjustment of just getting used to having a sleeping partner? It's uh, funny to talk with newly married couples sometimes. Of course, there's a part of sleeping together that they really enjoy. And then there's that other part, like having an elbow in your ribs all night or those strange sounds that people are making during the night. Or the fact that they snore and you didn't really realize that. Didn't get brought up during your pre-marriage counseling. Adjusting to having a living partner can create pressure. 
How about the pressure of increased obligations and demands? You know, now that you're married, you're supposed to know certain stuff, right? I thought, silly me, I thought when I got married that there was actually many acceptable ways of putting dishes in the dishwasher. I thought, you know, there's got to be multiple ways of doing it. And only after I got married did I discover there's only one standard and approved way to do it. I was just thankful to have a dishwasher. But, you know, I'd get it all in there, and then she'd come along and go, that doesn't go there, and that doesn't go there, and this goes over here. And I thought, who knew, you know? (laughs) And that there's one way to squeeze the toothpaste tube and one acceptable standard-approved way for rolling the toilet paper, and on and on it goes. Increased obligations and demands. And then you got to figure out and divide up, you know, household chores and duties and who's going to do the yard work and do laundry and who's going to handle the finances and who's going to cook and vacuum. And when you were single, it was all just so much simpler, wasn't it? It was you. How about the pressure of increasing financial needs when you get married? Well, now there's another mouth to feed more insurance to buy, more cars to maintain, more hobbies to fund, more closet space needed. And then if your marriage is blessed with children, more mouths to feed, more insurance to buy, more space needed, more evenings at the ball field or at the school. And how about all the paraphernalia you have to haul around with you when you have lots of kids? I remember when our kids were all young and we'd go on vacation. I remember one time coming out to the van with my suitcase, open up the hatch, and it's full. I mean, there's walkers and cribs and playpens and, you know, high chairs and all this stuff that you got to haul around when your kids are young. The pressures of having children. And there's just the natural pressures of growing together in a relationship where you have conflict. And so there's more emotional energy that's needed and more understanding and more love and more forgiveness and There's more wishes to consider than just your own. You see, marriage presses two people together in the closest possible quarters. And it creates pressure. I'm not saying that marriage is not rewarding. Paul was also an advocate of marriage. Family life is not just pure, uninterrupted trouble all the time. Paul is simply pointing out that marriage will likely relieve some pressures but cause a lot of others. And some singles have this notion that if, oh, if I could just get married, then my problems would be solved. It's like some, but others will become, you know, magnified. So Paul says this, if you're single, consider remaining that way if you can, if you have the gift of singleness. Don't feel pressured to run out and get married because some well-meaning, well-intentioned people think you ought to be married. Married people have a whole boatload of troubles that you don't have right now. And he says, I'd like to spare you those pressures. So that's his first reason or benefit of staying single. The second one is this. Singles will fare better during seasons of intense persecution. That's what he says in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Interesting phrase. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form 
of this world is passing away. And you hear that and you go, that's just odd. (laughs) Paul, what are you talking about? And there's two possible things that Paul may have been saying here. You notice he said there, the time is growing short. He may have been talking about the end times. That's possible. That we're close to the return of Christ. And if that's what he meant, then he would be saying this. Hey, Jesus is coming back soon. All the signs point to it. In light of that, live in such a way that temporal things... Temporary things of this life and this world start to become less and less important to you. Things are changing in God's grand plan, and you need to be changing too. Start realizing how little material stuff really matters. Change what you get upset about. Change what you cry about. Change what you laugh about. Change what you rejoice about. Realize that even marriage is for this life only. That's what Jesus taught, right? And live in that reality. It's possible that that's what Paul was talking about. The end times or the eschatological interpretation of this passage. But more likely, this exhortation relates specifically to what was going on in that era. What Christians of that era were facing or were about to face. When he says the present form of this world is passing away, the word literally means the current way of life. Your current way of life, Christian, is about ready to change the current state of things. I think it's likely that Paul was looking ahead and seeing that they were about to enter a whole new era, an era full of persecution, where being a Christian would be a costly thing. Remember his earlier comment, in view of the present distress, it's good to be single? Within 10 years of when he wrote 1 Corinthians, a season of persecution was going to begin under the emperor Nero that would result in the execution, the brutal execution of thousands of Christians. Paul himself would lose his life, and it would last for nearly 200 years. I think Paul saw it coming because I think some of it was already taking place right then and there. And so to be a Christian and have a wife, a husband, to have children during that season would present a myriad of additional pressures and problems and struggles. Persecution is difficult enough for a single person, but imagine having a a wife or a husband and children. The pain, the problems are multiplied. So I, I believe Paul is advocating singleness and even a more detached marriage because of the persecution that was coming. A lot of them were about to be widowed, basically, is what he was saying. So, singles will fare better during a season of intense persecution. Third reason that Paul advocated singleness, singles are free from marital anxieties. He's kind of building on something he said earlier. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Concerns is the word. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And all the husbands said, yep, my wife wants me to please her and make her happy and be focused on that. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit 
But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And all the wives said, yep, (laughs) my husband wants me to please him. And he focused on that. So what Paul's saying here is that married people have anxieties and concerns that single people don't have. You know, he talks about worldly things here. That, That doesn't refer in this context to evil things, bad things, but just the natural concerns of this life. He's saying that married people sometimes have to divide their interests between pleasing their spouse and pleasing God, doing what they believe God's prompting them to do. And those of us who are married know this. If you're a married person and you feel God prompting you, for example, to go on a missions trip, like a lot of these folks we prayed for earlier, you can't just on a whim, you know, drop a bombshell on your spouse and say, I'm gone for the next three weeks. You can't do that. You've got to check in with your maid and talk about it. You've got to look at the family calendar. Your spouse might say, hey, honey, you can't go that week because Junior has a band concert and Missy has a dance recital. And besides, it's our anniversary. And not only that, my whole family's coming in to stay at our home that week. And that's when you say, Uganda never looked so good. I'm out of here. <laughs> Handle it while I'm gone, dear. But you know, If you're single and God speaks to you and you feel prompted to go and if you can get the time off work, guess what? You can go. There's not all these hoops you have to jump through and get people to sign off on all this and that. You just go. I asked Cindy, Miss Cindy, our queen of missions trips, to do a little research for me this week. Just over the last couple years, how does it, the folks who've gone on short-term trips, how does it break down between marrieds and singles? And she did the work and she said, you know, about 70% of those who have gone have been single. And that just reflects the reality of the situation, doesn't it? I'm going next year to Uganda because I'm thrilled about this partnership with Makono Church that we're entering into. And I envision all kinds of folks going both ways in that partnership. Folks from here, marrieds and singles, going there, tradespeople, electricians, IT people, business people, realtors, Healthcare, medical field, going there and being a blessing there, and folks from Uganda coming and opening our eyes to what God's doing around the world. Wouldn't that be cool? And if you're a married person and, you, and God begins to talk to you about that, maybe going on the trip I'm going on, don't wait until a few weeks before to drop that on your spouse. Tell them now. Plant the seed now. Hey, honey, I'm thinking about next year. When you're married, worldly concerns just come with the territory. That's what Paul's saying. A married Christian's interests are divided. There are considerations before jumping into a ministry or hooking up with a small group or signing up for a study. You need to get input from your spouse. Sometimes they're not wild about it. They've got different interests or different priorities for them and for you. And so he's saying singles are at an advantage in that regard. And he's right. A fourth reason or benefit of staying single. Singles are free to give their undivided devotion to Christ. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. The original word is noose. Not to put a noose around your neck and say, you know, if you're single, you've got to stay single your whole life. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
So again, when it comes to being totally devoted to God and God's work, being single has its advantages. Now, marriage doesn't necessarily prevent someone from being devoted to the Lord, and being single doesn't guarantee it. It's not automatic. But singleness has fewer hindrances. The married person, just by virtue of being married, will be double-minded, at least to some degree. And singles don't have to be. They have a choice. Well, at this point, Paul kind of steps out and in kind of a sidebar conversation, he wants to talk for a few moments to those who are engaged, who are pledged to be married. My subtitle is, When It's No Longer Good to Be Single. Think Steve and Paula, okay? Here's what he said, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, towards his fiance, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them, what does it say? Marry. It doesn't say let them go ahead and sleep together. Let them go ahead and have sex. It does not say that. Again, Paul is reinforcing his belief that in God's design, sexual intimacy and union is reserved for the covenant marriage relationship. So he says if, if, if it's strong, let him get married. That's not a sin. But, verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and he's determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul was an unabashed advocate of singleness. And obviously, he held self-control in high regard, didn't he? Let me just give you my opinion on something. My opinion, not Bible. I'm a fan of long courtships and short engagements. Let me tell you why. Well, for one, the reasons mentioned here. But also, I think it's just wise to take plenty of time during your dating, during your courtship, to really get to know someone because anyone can look good for a short period of time. Anyone can pretend and pose for a season and portray themselves as something or someone that they are not really. Anyone can do that. Now, I know there are exceptions to the long courtship rule that I'm proposing. And I've met people who've said, well, Pastor Steve, I met Bertha at the Hootenanny. And we got married three days later. We've been together for 47 years. I'm like, Okay, you know, that's good for you guys, but that is not a good template to apply to everybody. You're the exception to the rule, I would say. Maybe it worked for you, but it's risky. Take your time. Don't feel rushed. Get to know this person. Get to see them in all kinds of different settings. See them with their families. See them in social circles. Talk about everything. But then once you know, don't wait around forever to get married. You know, pastor, we just, we got engaged and we're going to get married in 2014. I'm like, don't do that. Why? Because you'll be tempted to sin during your engagement. That's why. You draw that thing out. You've already pledged yourselves to be married to each other. Your mind will come up with all kinds of justifications and rationalizations of why it's okay to sleep together during your engagement. Because, you know, we're basically married in our hearts and we love each other and 
blah, blah, blah. This is the way the enemy works. Again, I can't give you a chapter and verse for short engagements, unless it's this one, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. You see short engagements in there? And since we're on the topic, let's talk for a moment about online Christian dating and matchmaking services, eHarmony and Match.com and some of the others. And so that I wouldn't tick you all off, I asked our resident marriage expert, Bill Robbins, to give me his opinion on these online services. And he said, you know, Steve, like a lot of things, there's an upside and there's a downside. He said, on the positive side, these kinds of services link people up who are looking for a relationship but don't want to resort to the secular scene, don't want to resort to the the atmosphere that they find in the, the singles bar scene and so forth. Yeah, makes sense. There's a, there's a certain eliminating of the whole game playing that's going on a lot, a lot of times between couples. Hey, we both know why we, we're online, right? <laughs> Our intentions are clear. He says uh, most of these sites offer some level of screening that weeds out the predators and the axe murderers, and that's probably good. The Christian sites give you a good chance of meeting another Christian. Couples are usually matched with someone in their desired age range and with some shared interests. All good. On the other side of the ledger, he said this. People often lie like they do on their resumes. They're online and they're filling out their profile and they make themselves look better than they actually are. It's human nature to do that, to exaggerate. He says you've got to be aware of that. Maybe some of you, having done this, have gotten burnt and thinking, you know, you portrayed yourself a certain way and you're not that person. But then he said this. He said, my biggest concern, this is in boldface, with these services is the emphasis on finding the right person. Thinking that my happiness depends on finding this perfect soulmate is a wrong premise for building a marriage. Think about that. Rather than the focus being on how can I be the best husband or be the best wife, how can I love this person for Jesus, the focus is often on how happy will this person make me feel. And then when they disappoint me or let me down or stop making me happy, then there's trouble in the marriage. He said, I think these services can be good, but we need to caution people from the this person is going to make me happy attitude going into marriage. we're thinking about. Let's say you want to get married. You've been dating someone for a while. You're in a relationship. You feel the pull towards that. And so this happens a lot. In the lobby, you'll come up to one of our pastors, Pastor Jay or Pastor Claude or Pastor Brian or myself and say, you know, you're all glowing, you know, and excited. We just got engaged last night and we want to get married here and we'd like you to marry us. And you need to know that we've been trained to have a sort of muted enthusiasm, okay? And so we'll look at you and say something like, well, man, I'm, I'm so honored that you'd ask me. I really am. We have a process that we've put in place here at New Life that I'm going to encourage you 
to go through. We, we take seriously our role in preparing people to enter into marriage because there's a lot of troubles and there's a lot of pressures in marriage. And we want to help couples get eyes wide open going into that. So we have a process here. And so if you'll contact our marriage enrichment department, you can get on that pathway to being married here. Does that make sense? We take weddings and marriage seriously. We like to say we don't do weddings here as much as we do marriages. And to be part of a church family that's supportive and understand God's design for marriage and the significance of the covenant that you make when you stand up here and say, I will, I will, we take that very seriously. I've, um, man, in my mind I'm thinking about conversations. I remember one conversation I had with a gal in my office. She loved this guy. And she said, you know, he just, I want to marry him. He, he makes me feel so good and so important. And I said, but he doesn't have a job. And he's fathered kids in like 12 states. You know, oh, but he's such a, no, he's not. I, I literally, I came up out of my seat and got in her face. And I said, think about this. You're seeing this guy at his best right now, okay? He's trying to win you. He's got his best foot forward right now. This is as good as it gets. Do you understand that? You think that when you get married, you're going to bring him around and it's all going to be great. And I'm thinking, no, don't be foolish. You see, just the way we're wired, we can become so enamored with someone and this gal standing there with Harold and she thinks Harold's awesome and I'm thinking, Harold's a jerk and you need to listen to godly counsel. <laughs> Harold would be a generic term for some guy, that, <laughs> some fictitious guy who doesn't really exist, okay? You know, if you're in a relationship that's heading that direction, please listen to godly counsel. Please. All right, I'm on a rabbit trail. Come back, come back. Reason number five. Well, let me review first. Paul is an advocate for singleness for some Christians. To spare them many marriage troubles and pressures, he believes they'll fare better during seasons of persecution. They'll be free from marital anxieties and free to give their undivided devotion to Jesus. Number five, singles, especially widows have the potential to be happier remaining single. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. I know I said this last week. I want to say it again. Resolve in your heart to marry a Christian. And I would say marry someone who loves Jesus like you hopefully do that you share that common treasure and you'll be able to pray together and seek God together and come to church and worship together. Marry a Christian, Paul would say, who's someone who's in the Lord. And I know that, you know, evangelistic dating and all that and evangelistic marriage, you know, the odds are so minuscule, like 0.00 something percent. And find find that out early on in the relationship. Does this person love Jesus Christ? Not later, after you've given your heart away already. Verse 40. Yet, here's his 
plug for singleness. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. A little bit of sarcasm there because he was being, his spiritual authority was being challenged in that church. So singles, especially widows, he says, have the potential to be happier remaining single. Why happier? Why? Well, for all the reasons already stated, fewer troubles, less pressure, fewer anxieties, more freedom to serve Jesus, ability to give single-hearted devotion to Christ, and less concern if, or I might add, when persecution comes. And it says it's especially true for widows. And I know that in this church, some of our widows have chosen not to be remarried after the passing of their spouse. Not all, but some have deemed that they will be happier and enjoy more of these benefits of singleness and be more free to devote themselves to their children and grandchildren and and God's work by remaining unmarried. Precious, precious people in our church. And I thought about this this week. We have, for widowers, we have a a prayer and support group for widowers right here in this church. And I, I don't know I've ever mentioned it, but there's some wonderful men who come together and encourage each other and, and get in the word together and pray together and hold each other accountable. And if you find yourself in that situation as a widower, um, when we're done here in a little bit, if you'd write on the back of your card just that word, widower, we'll try to get the information to you about that group that meets. Great, great men. So to wrap up here, Paul is an advocate of singleness for some Christians especially during seasons of persecution. So those of us who are married, we need to not fall into the trap of viewing singleness as some kind of second-class existence and making snide little comments to that effect in the presence of our single friends. It's not. As a kind of exclamation point, think, think for a moment about this. Try to envision this. Jesus Christ our Savior, married. That's kind of hard to even envision, isn't it? Our Savior was single. Try to envision him married for a moment, walking around Israel for three years. And he's got a wife and maybe some kids. Honey, are you going to be home for supper tonight? I'm getting exasperated by all these long road trips you keep taking. Don't forget the kids' practices tonight. I know that next week you're slated to feed the multitudes and heal the sick and cast out demons and meet with the Pharisees, but you've got to come with me to the teachers' conference for junior. I want you to be there with me. Now, why do those 12 uncouth, sweaty, smelly men have to be around the house all the time? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the temptation to bypass the cross was already strong enough. What if Jesus had the additional concern of knowing that he would leave behind a widow and would leave his children fatherless? He was excruciating enough for his mom to watch him being beaten and mocked and crucified. How about if he had a wife and kids looking on? But because he was single, Jesus was free to just do the Father's will. Thank God. He was free from those kinds of concerns, free to invest himself in those 12 uncouth men without regard to schedules and family obligations and without ticking off his wife. He was free to speak truth and attract opposition in the ire 
of the religious elite and the Pharisees and not worry about retaliation against his family and against his kids. He was free to go to the cross to pay for sin and purchase eternal salvation for believers without any hesitation of how his death might affect his wife and kids. So integral to the father's plan for the son was his being single. And it might be integral to the father's plan for you as well. Well, let me finish by just taking a minute and making a couple of quick applications to this family, this church family, this body of believers. Do you have on the backside one, two, and three and nothing there? That means I can say whatever I want and you can write it in. Number one, if you're single, and Paul's talking about the benefits of singleness, if you are single, may I challenge you to not spend your evenings moping around, wallowing in self-pity, but to give your life fully to Jesus Christ and serve him with everything you've got. This church, the ministry of this church is upheld by dozens and dozens of awesome, fantastic single adults who serve and give themselves. And I would encourage you to get in the game. Serve your church. Serve your church family. Spend your evenings discipling people and meeting with people and having coffee and expanding your relational world and your horizons. Go on a short-term trip. You've got advantages that married people don't have. Understand that. Use that. The antidote for self-pity is serving, serving, serving others. If you're married, number two, if you're a married person, I want to encourage you to do what I've done this last year. Get to know some of the fantastic single people in this church. Maybe they stood up earlier around you. and you, Last hour, someone said, I just met a new friend here. One was married, one was single. Get to know them. Let your life be enriched by hanging around people who aren't just exactly like you or right at your particular life stage. I know we gravitate towards that, but the body is meant to be diverse. Get to know some of your single brothers and sisters in Christ. Go out to dinner together. Go to a movie. Go to coffee. Hear their story. Share yours. What kind of a church could we be if we celebrated that kind of diversity and formed a community of believers where we had mutual trust and respect and love for our single and our married friends. Wouldn't that be cool? And number three, I'm not going to give you. That's for you. See, here's what I believe. I believe that God speaks to us through his word. And I pray for this, and we, we pray for this. And somewhere in what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, the Holy Spirit pointed something out to you, and I'm going to ask you to write it down right now. I don't know what it is. Something, you see, everybody in the room is in a different situation, right? Nobody's situation is exactly the same. And every week I just pray, Lord, through your spirit, take the word of God and apply it personally. Customize it for this person and this couple and this person. And he can do that. And so just believing that, I'm asking you to write down, what did God say to you? What's God's word to you through this word from the scripture? And write it down. And so as you do, I'd like to pray for you. So would you bow your heads? Lord, I praise you for 
your design originated in your mind for singleness and for marriage. And Lord, I pray as a, as a body of believers, we would celebrate both. Not only the joys and beauties of a wedding ceremony or a couple who has reached the 25-year milestone or the 50-year milestone, but may we also celebrate singleness and the life of devotion to Jesus that so many of our singles express through their lives. May we respect each other and love each other. May we get to know each other. May the common ground we share at the foot of the cross bring us together. Lord, I pray this morning for any in this room who might not have ever truly repented of their sins and believed the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray that an understanding of the cross and the payment that was made there would resonate deep in a deep place in their heart. They would understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life, suffered and bled and died on a cross for them, and then was risen from the grave to prove that he was indeed the Son of God. Save those who are not yet saved. Forgive them through the gospel, I pray. And thank you for your word to us today. May we apply it to our lives. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.